Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Chuck Butler uh, writes a newsletter for Aiden Forecast, AidenForecast.com. They're a sponsor of our program, or at least they were. I'm not sure that they still are. But I've subscribed to their newsletter for probably close to 20 years now. And Chuck pointed out a number of things that I just wanted to share with you that I think are worth noting. We're watching the stock market drop and people are wondering, well, what's going on? Is this the sugar high from the tax breaks wearing off or is this just a normal cycle in capitalism or are there actual structural deficiencies? Now, in my book, The Crash of 2016, which uh, really should have just been titled The Great Crash because here it is, I think or we're on the doorstep of it within the next year. In that book, I laid out how basically in 2009, after President Obama came to power and set about fixing our economy and putting us back on track, that what had precipitated this in 2007 was massive corporate debt that was highly leveraged and the inability of the Fed to drop interest rates far enough and fast enough to make up for the loss of what's called liquidity, that is available credit in the marketplace. Chuck starts out talking about how consumer debt now here in the, well, first of all, that the stock market lost a trillion dollars last week, which means that that small portion of the stock market, you know, the five or 10% that is literally working people who are, have their IRAs or their, their uh, 401ks in there, they are less wealthy than they were. But it also means that a lot of these big corporations that have been financing their debt with stock, their stock is not worth as much. And so the corporations are in trouble. We'll get to that in just a second. Consumer debt in November exploded by $25.4 billion. That was just in November last month. That's like, you know, basically credit card debt. Uh, the annualized consumer debt has now reached $3.9 trillion. That's seven and a half, 7.7% higher than last year and families can't issue their own money. So consumer debt is a real problem. It does have to be paid off. Or if it's not paid off, if people go into bankruptcy, then what that does, you know, if large numbers of people do, is it takes down the banks. That's what we saw in 2008. Meanwhile, the way that the Fed responds to a crash, to a recession, is by dropping what's called the Fed funds rate. In other words, dropping interest rates. So it's cheaper to borrow money, both for businesses and for individuals. So people borrow money and pump that money back into the economy and that stimulates the economy, right? It's real simple. People will more easily borrow money to buy houses and buy big things, cars and whatnot, or even small things. Used to be that when interest rates went down, credit card rates go down too, although I don't think there's much evidence of that happening anymore. But in any case, they would lower the interest rates. And the average federal funds rate, Fed fund rate, the FFR, uh, which is basically our you know, national interest rate, the lowest of the national interest rates. Before every recession that we've had, the average was around 6.5%, which meant that they had 650 basis points that they could lower interest rates, a basis point a hundredth of a percent, that they could lower interest rates in order to encourage borrowing and thus spending, which is what feeds an economy. Well, currently, the Fed fund rate is 2.25% which means if we're sliding into a recession right now, and by the way, the Dow is down more than 10%, which means technically we are in a stock market correction. The Fed doesn't have room 
to bail out the economy the way they did in 2008. It was 2001, actually, was when it hit. I mean, the Fed just doesn't have the ability to do that. And this is a really, really concerning thing. And meanwhile, the leveraged loan market, the commercial paper market, is starting to freeze up. I'm getting concerned. Thanks so much for your support for the Tom Hartman program. We deliver our program, of course, to commercial stations, which is how we pay our bills through the revenue from running advertising. And you can learn more about those at our website at TomHartman.com. But we also share our program with non-commercial outlets from Free Speech TV to Pacifica stations all over the country. And because with the Pacifica radio stations, there's basically no revenue coming in. The way that we support our nonprofit outreach is in large part through Patreon. People who support our program at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman get special little clips and there's a few other goodies. If you want to support the Tom Hartman program, that's the way to do it is to get over to patreon.com slash Tom Hartman and check out what we're doing and support our program. Thank you. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is uh, Dr. Stephanie Kelton. Stephanie Kelton is one of the leaders of the modern monetary theory uh, movement, as it were. She's a professor of public policy and economics at Stony Brook University, former chief economist to the U.S. Senate Budget Committee and an advisor to the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign, uh, one of the founding fellows of the Sanders Institute. Her website, Stephanie, uh, I.E. Kelton, K-E-L-T-O-N.com. And her Twitter handle is also Stephanie Kelton's. Professor Kelton, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you. It is great having you with us on the program. You uh, wrote this brilliant piece called We Can Pay for a Green New Deal. I found it over at Common Dreams. I'm, I'm guessing it probably popped up in other places as well. And just to start at the beginning, well, I guess there's two beginnings. One is the disaster, the economic disaster, in addition to all the other levels of disaster of, of climate change, which is actually not something off in the distant future, is literally happening right now in front of us on the one hand. And on the other hand, how Franklin Roosevelt paid for the New Deal. Um, can I toss those to you as a starting point for a riff on this? Yeah, sure. I think that increasingly we're getting to the point where the public is recognizing that this is not a problem that's off in the distance. It's not something that we can escape. There's virtually no part of the country that's immune from the threat of climate change. And I think recent reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the recently released report out of this administration, no less, of federal scientists in a 1,600-page report telling us that this is a clear and present danger. So I think increasingly the good news is that we're aware and we're aware that this thing is barreling down on us at a rate that requires immediate action. This is not something we can wait to address somewhere down the road in the distant future. So with that as a backdrop, the question then inevitably becomes as people say, well, we got to do something, right? And you've got people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Sunrise Movement. They're occupying leader Pelosi or presumptive leader Pelosi's office and, and saying, you know, we want action. We want a Green New Deal. And, of course, the first question is, well, how are you going to pay for it? And then we get all bogged down in these questions about, you know, affordability. Nancy Pelosi's talking about bringing back PAYGO, which is like a disaster, right, if when the Democrats take back the House and if she becomes leader. And so you got all this stuff going on. And so what we wanted to do in this piece, I, along with my co-authors, and we wrote the piece for the Huffington Post, was to say, listen, if we're going to do what must be done, if we're going to take bold action on the order, if you're calling it the New Deal, then we've got to do something like what Roosevelt did in the New Deal, a massive transformation of the economy, huge mobilization of resources. And that is going to require a commitment on the part of the federal government to fund that transition. And so we have got to get over this belief we have that we're still trapped on a gold standard. This is not the way Roosevelt proceeded. If you remember, and I know you do because I've read your books and you get the history, you know that Roosevelt abandoned the gold standard in order to pursue the big ambitious programs, first the New Deal and then World War II fighting, that we went off the gold standard. We transformed our monetary system so that we could free ourselves up 
to do these big ambitious spending programs. And now here we are with a monetary system that gives us all the flexibility we need to fund a Green New Deal. And we've got Speaker presumably coming in and talking about tying us back to the cross of gold. So that's what we wanted to do in this piece. Yeah. And the cross of gold being actually, I mean, she's not talking about the, going back to the gold standard, but the PAYGO thing is this yeah, uh, neoliberal slash Republican idea that if, if Trump cuts taxes by $5 trillion, a trillion and a half in the first year, you don't need to offset that somehow. But if Democrats want to do a Green New Deal and literally save the human race save from humanity, extinction, yeah. or over the short term, save modern civilization, which is actually fraying in the places where climate change is really hitting hard, like mm -hmm. in the Fertile Crescent of the Mideast, causing the Syrian conflict and other things, oh, we can't afford that. We have to pay for that. Well, you know, without putting in the frame of the gold standard, the idea that the government should be run like a business or a family is basically orthodoxy on the Republican side, although they don't live this way, obviously, but this is what they say. And it has been embraced by, by the new Dems, by the, the neoliberals, you know, the DLC Dems in the Democratic Party. How do you respond to that? Well, not well. Why, do, why does it not matter, I guess, is the question. No, I mean, look, this is pretty much why I get out of bed every single day is to help push the Overton window so that we get better policy. And you're exactly right. The new Dems are definitely not helping. In fact, they are part of the opposition. If we're going to get something like a Green New Deal, it's going to require people to drop this framing that you referenced, that the federal government is basically just like a household, that it has to play by the same set of rules, faces the same sorts of constraints, has to, quote, live within its means, it's fiscally irresponsible to spend more than it takes in, it should be paying down debt and worrying about the budget deficit and all this kind of stuff. And this is going to absolutely 100 percent stand in the way of any progressive agenda, not just the Green New Deal, but Medicare for all, making public colleges and universities tuition free, even something as basic as doing some run-of-the-mill infrastructure investment. I mean, it's going to thwart the entire progressive agenda. So um, I worked very hard to help, you know, pull back the curtain on how the modern monetary system actually works and how government finance actually works in the modern era. So let's let's just lay that out explicitly. One of the the DLC Dems or a Republican would come along and say, "Well, Dr. Kelton, that sounds very good, but right now we've got a 20 plus trillion dollar deficit and at 3% interest rate, we're spending 600 billion dollars a year in interest on the debt." Correct my math if it's wrong. You know, if interest rates go up, that'll that could be even more than the Pentagon budget. Where's that money going to come from and don't you reach a crisis point where you just literally can't afford the interest on the national debt? So you just gave me a ton of stuff to unpack, and I don't know whether you plan to be with me for the next three hours, but we could, <laughs> I could take that long. We've got about five um, minutes, uh, four it's minutes. Like six, it's like six chapters of the book I'm working on that you Good. just packed into that one question. But look, the, let me do it as quickly. But if we don't have a quick answer to that question, we're screwed. Yeah, so the answer to the question is there is no debt crisis. There is no long-term debt crisis. There is no short-term debt crisis. There will never come a time when the federal government of the United States of America has obligations, bills coming due in U.S. dollars, that it is unable to pay. The reason is simple. And the reason is because the United States government literally holds the patent on the creation of the U.S. dollar. It can't legally come from anywhere else. You and I can't create the dollar. That's what makes us different from the federal government. That's why households aren't like the federal government. We're users of the currency. We use the U.S. dollar. The federal government is the issuer of the dollar. And as such, it can never run out of money. It can never have things that it wants to buy that it can't afford to purchase. If there are things for sale in dollars, if there are people who are willing to work in exchange for the dollar, the government can hire anybody wants to employ, put them to work on new Green Deal jobs and other sorts of things, and it's never going to face a solvency crisis. It can't turn into Greece. We don't depend on China. I mean, all of these uh, sorts of things that you hear politicians like Paul Ryan and New Dems and others are just 
missing a basic fundamental point, which is that the U.S. dollar comes from the U.S. government and it can't come from anywhere else. But then, but then they come back and they say, oh, my God, you're talking about printing more money. You're going to debase the currency. We're going to have 30 percent inflation. Okay, so then we have to take that one. So what I'll often say is once you get your opponent arguing on inflation, you've already won the argument, because at least then you're talking about the right constraints. Mm -hmm. And inflation is a legitimate constraint. So then you have to say, okay, how would we go about planning for a transition from an economy that is based and built around fossil fuels to one that is built around clean energy, around a green economy. And this is exactly the kind of problem that Keynes tackled. John Maynard Keynes, probably the most important economist of the last century. This is the same problem Keynes tackled uh, when Britain and the U.S. were entering World War II. And he wrote a very famous piece, and it was called How to Pay for the War. And that piece was all about how to carefully plan the use of the resources, the manpower, the machines, the factories. How do you redirect the manufacturing and production and employment in an economy away from consumption-based consumer economy toward a war economy and to do it in a way that doesn't risk accelerating inflation. That's exactly what Keynes laid out and other economists in the 1940s, and that's exactly the kind of thing we should be working on today. We have the power of the purse. The, power, the question is, how do we deploy the power of the purse in a way that's responsible so we have a just transition away from fossil fuels to a green economy where we don't leave people behind who lose jobs in coal and fracking and offshore drilling in other places. We bring all those people along, put them to work in good paying jobs oriented around getting to 100% renewable energy. You are absolutely one of the most brilliant people I know. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Dr. Stephanie Kelton, professor of public policy and economics at Stony Brook University, former chief economist for the U.S. Senate Budget Committee, advisor to Bernie Sanders in 2016, and a founding fellow of the Sanders Institute. StephanieKelton.com is the website, and you can tweet her at Stephanie Kelton. Dr. Kelton, thank you so much for being with us. Always my pleasure, Tom. Thank you. And mine, too. Thank you so much. We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that'll really stand out, right? I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady's been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping in time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. Mike in Brookline, Massachusetts. Hey, Mike, what's up? This is about the federal deficit. People forget that the debt burden is the interest rate times the deficit. And if the interest rate is zero or even negative, there's no burden on the government. Now, Japan has about two and a half or maybe a little less, but let's say double the American deficit. Yeah, they're at about 250% of GDP. We're around 100% of GDP. Yeah. Yeah. And they pay nothing, and they've paid nothing for a long time. And it's interesting because they forget what the mechanism is. The way it works in Japan is that the government issues debts at zero or negative interest rates, very low, and maybe uh, half a percent for a 30-year bond or something like right. that. Guess what? The public doesn't want the debt. I don't blame them. You know, I wouldn't buy it. Mm. But guess who does want the debt? The equivalent of the federal verb, the central bank. So the central bank um, prints up money, buys the debt, and now when the, let's say it's even at 3%, it's not, but let's say it was, what happens is the profits of that debt get sent back to the federal government as profit, more or less, other than the, the rip-off fees that the bank's going to charge. So in the end, they, the government 
can modernize and pay nothing on the debt. Now, if you're in a situation which you're not in Japan with very high demand, you're going to create inflation by this, okay? And that's the one demand of the thing. But the idea that the feds can't set the interest rate and the debt burden is sort of nonsense. So who uh, who benefits from high interest rates? Answer the banks. Who owns the Federal Reserve in the United States? The banks. Well, and, so and, the, and there's also a law on the, on the books, Mike, in the United States that I believe is not the case in Japan that says that the only way that the federal government can sell debt, can sell treasuries and, and bonds, is via the big banks in New York. It has to, that has to, even, even if the Fed is buying them, it has to run through the big banks in New York that well, take the piece off the top. They pay, pay, let's say, a quarter of a point to the big banks in New York, which is uh, corrupt, but let's give them, their, give them their, their corruption. And now the Federal Reserve buys the debt at, you know, a tenth of a point of interest. You know, the thing mm -hmm. is that the debt burden, as bad as it is, is going to be negligible. And the thing is that the commentary of this country, there's no understanding of this in all of the mainstream commentary. No, there's not. And, and everybody tries to use this example of households, which is just total BS. Yeah, right. Okay. Households so don't I've print their own you, money. I've sketched, I've sketched what's going on. It's basically a kind, of, uh, a kind of institutionalized corruption that's gone on for a long time. Now, Japan has lots of problems, but one of them isn't modern infrastructure. They basically developed, uh, they probably overdeveloped, you know. Right. So, and they paid for it with debt, by the way. Right, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, but it works. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, what this does is it prints dollars if we did the same thing. And if we have lots of aggregate demand in the uh, problem of the economy, no unemployment, you'd have inflation, okay? Yeah. But this point needs to be made. Because this is basically a kind of, it's not, it's not illegal, it's basically... Right. What you're talking about, though, Mike, is, is um, reinventing the Fed, is taking the Fed away from the big banks that own it and, and, and having taking the Fed... Taking a national bank, actually. Right, exactly. Having it be owned by the federal government. And, or even incorporate the Fed, I've been calling for this for a long time, incorporate the Fed into the Treasury Department. Make it a federal sure. agency and and disconnect it from the big banks and also take out of the loop the requirement that when the Fed or the, when the Treasury Department sells debt, even if they're selling it at the Fed, that it has to go through Citibank or J.P. Morgan Chase or something like that. Uh, do away with that. So politically, I like it independent just so that uh, that the Treasury is not buying its own debt. But, you know, um, but. Whatever works is fine. I yeah, I mean, it could be know. a separate, separate standalone agency, you know, with, right. with, within within the within the uh, executive branch. Yeah, so Mike, I, I need to move along here. We've 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 uh, you know, I'm I'm concerned that you know people who who uh, that that a lot of people are just like confused by this conversation. But th this is this this actually is really important stuff. Mike, thanks a lot for the call. I, I think that's a really important point. Rob in Chico, California. Hey, Rob, what's up? Good morning. Hey. I'm stunned by your, by you more and more each week. I listen to you. I hope that's why, good. Why is why is there a debt? If, if your way of thinking, why do we even have a national debt? We can just print money as we, as the bills come in. Well, I, I don't think Stephanie Kelton is suggesting, for that matter, that we simply print money. But there are ways to resolve the national debt. The main reason to have a national debt is because there needs to be. To have a, a functioning economy, a safely functioning, well-regulated economy, there needs to be a place where money can be deposited without fear that it will be lost. Banks have never represented that. In fact, you, you'll recall in 1933, the week that Franklin Roosevelt took office, March 5th, 1933, the, all the banks in America failed and all that money was lost. So what the federal government has done and has done from the beginning of the republic is to, through the Treasury Department, is to provide a place where people can park their money safely. And the one time in our history that the federal debt has been taken down to zero was, I think, 1834. It was during the administration of Andrew Jackson. It was after he vetoed the Second National Bank and took that down. And what it did was it produced the longest and deepest depression in the history of the United States. If the, the national debt is not just the debt that our government owes, it's also private savings. 
of that $21 trillion in our national debt right now, about $4 trillion of it is money that the government owes itself. So it's basically money that's just parked. Social Security Trust Fund, Medicare Trust Fund. You've got now the, the Postal Service Trust Fund. Um, so the, of the remaining 17 or $18 trillion, uh, there's about $2 trillion of that that is foreign money that is parked here. But the rest of it is money that Americans and American businesses want to have in a safe place. And the reason why you hear Republicans constantly screaming about the federal debt and how we've got to get down the debt, and we've got to pay it off, and we shouldn't have any debt at all, is because the big banks, this is, this is the big banks speaking, the big New York banks want to be the only game in town if you want to have savings. They want you to be forced to put your savings with them. They very much resent the fact that the federal government competes with them as a place to safely store money. And therefore, if you don't have a national debt, and this is why every country in the world does have a national debt, if you don't have a national debt, you end up with an insanely unstable economic system, Rob. Well, thanks for filibustering, Tom. Do you believe that the government can overspend? Let me ask you that question. I don't know what overspend means. Do, is there any limit to what the government spends? Should they, put, should they spend $5 trillion on the military budget this year? Well, what we did when we fought World War II was we ended up with a national debt that was 124% of GDP. Right now, we're, if you take out you know, the money that the government owes itself from the debt, we're close to 100% of GDP. So we were far deeper in debt in 1946 than we are today. The, the way that, that Franklin Rose, or the way that Dwight Eisenhower, Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower got us out of that, but principally Dwight Eisenhower paid off the national debt or paid down the national debt to about 10 or 20% of GDP was the national highway system. And, and the way that he did that was he borrowed another what in today's dollars would be over a trillion dollars. He borrowed another few you know, tens of billions of dollars in the early 50s and built the national highway system and put millions of people to work. Whenever you're talking about spending, Rob, you have to put it in the context of what you're spending the money for and what kind of return it's going to get. The GI Bill, another thing that Republicans were screaming about, this is going to break the bank. You're going to have to add to the national debt to pay for the GI Bill. What we learned by the 1960s was that for every dollar we spent educating people like my dad and my wife's father, who both went to college on the GI Bill, for every dollar we spent educating the, the young men who came back from World War II, we got $7 in additional tax revenue over their lifetimes because they earned more money with a college education than they would have if they only had a high school education. Plus, it brought an explosion of innovation. So the question isn't, Rob, how much are you spending? The question is, what are you spending that money on? If you're spending to get us off fossil fuel and into, into a green economy, that's going to produce enormous benefits to society. It's going to save the planet, and it's going to generate enormous tax revenues down the road, just like getting us out of the Great Depression did. Your turn. If the debt was a, when the debt hits $100 trillion, which it will, it, does that bother you at all? How do you know it'll hit $100 trillion? It, it, it's, it's pure math. It's $21 trillion now. And it's just going to go up and up and up. Well, it depends on whether Republicans continue giving more tax breaks to billionaires. I mean, you know, when Bill Clinton left office, he handed George W. Bush a budget surplus that over the course of the next 15 years, if nothing changed, would have paid off about 80 percent of the national debt. George Bush decided that he was going to put a trillion dollars on the debt for, with a tax break, another $2 trillion on the national debt with the war in Afghanistan, and another $2 trillion on the national debt with the war in Iraq. Obama inherited that, plus he needed to borrow another trillion dollars to get us out of the Bush recession. So, you know, we're in the situation we're in. And then Trump comes into office and says, oh, let's throw another $5 trillion on the national debt. Rob, I think you're debating the issue with the wrong side. It's, it's, it's not me that, that you have a problem with. It's your Republican buddies. I, I have a big problem with the Republicans, yes, but, and the Democrats and the federal government, whom you just said the purpose of the federal government is to, I think, something to maintain the commons. It says nothing like that in the founding documents. The purpose of government is to preserve liberty, and specifically individual liberty. But that's something you don't agree with either. Well, let me read to you, you the preamble to the Constitution then. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, number one. Number two, establish justice. Number three, ensure domestic tranquility. How is not getting us out of the Great Depression that? How is preventing you know, global warming and more destruction of property that? Provide for the common defense. Promote the general welfare. These are the purposes for which this Constitution was created. And securing the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. And by the way, they put this in this order because this was the order of priority do ordain and establish the Constitution for the United States of America. So if you think that, quote, liberty is the only reason that the Constitution was established, Rob, you're badly deluded. 
You're badly deluded. We'll okay, if we're just... All right. Rob, thanks a lot for the call. As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month, but odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for, for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT, and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package, originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now, and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two safe premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over a hundred years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com Enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT, in the search bar and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. It's your one. Tom Hartman here with you. And Cole Stangler. Cole is the Paris-based journalist and contributor to both The Nation magazine and Jacobin, among others. His website, Cole Stangler, S-T-A-N-G-L-E-R dot com. And you can tweet him at Cole Stangler. Cole, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Yeah, thanks for joining us from Paris. So you are there. You live there. You speak French. You have some sense of what's going on. I have read in the kind of mainstream media, I'm reading that the Yellow Vest movement is all about we don't want to pay for a gas tax. Well, actually, I, Louise and I were watching France 24 over the weekend and BBC because you just can't get news in America on the weekends. And in both cases, they were talking about people were basically protesting the fact that the rich are getting richer and working people are getting poorer. And, you know, it's not just the gas tax. It's basically they're protesting neoliberal economics. So what say you, Cole? So it's true that this movement really started over the fuel tax. So you had anger mounting over the summer. Fuel prices have actually gone up pretty substantially in France, about 25% over the last year. You had a call to protest on November 17th. So a big day of action to protest against taxes, against the fuel tax. And this is something that really affects working people. If you do the math, you know, a gallon of fuel in France comes out to over $6 per gallon. So it's a really significant cost in people's lives. 25% increase over the last year. In addition to that, the government wanted to apply this 10% increase effective 2019. So you had this initial call to protest over the fuel tax, calling for the government to drop this fuel tax increase. However, it's clear that since that first state of protest on November 17th, where you had over 200,000 people coming out across the country, since that first state of protest, this movement has really come to encompass a much broader discontent with Emmanuel Macron and a much broader frustration with the rising cost of living. You know, working class people in France say, why should we be expected to pay another 100 euros or so per month in gas, while at the same time the super rich are getting this massive tax cut? That's one of the landmarks of, of Emmanuel Macron's presidency so far, is, is cutting taxes for the super rich. So you had this trigger of the gas tax, but it's clear that we're at the moment now where it's a much bigger movement that is really articulating a deep discontent with the president and the way that he treats working class people. You know, there is a system or a method or whatever policy that has been widely applauded, in fact, to raise gas taxes in a way that wouldn't produce this kind of blowback. And it's called fee and rebate, which is where you raise the taxes, but 100% of that money gets recycled back to people in the bottom 80, 90%. And so, yeah, the gas tax might go up 25%, but, you know, you're going to get $100 a week or a month check from the government or something like that. Has there been any discussion about fee and rebate there? That's not a policy I've seen floated at the moment, but, you know, I think it's important to point out here because it really raises the question, you know, when you talk about opposition to the fuel tax, I think, you know, especially if you're sitting in the United States, you see this protest, I think it's very easy to transplant, you know, you're kind of, especially right-wingers, this kind of anti-government, you know, Tea Party-esque kind of ideology onto the protesters. But I think it's important to point out the kinds of people that are protesting here, you know, they're not protesting against the idea of intervention in the economy. They're not protesting against the idea of the state trying to address the environmental crisis. What they're protesting is the fact that it should be done on the backs of the working class alone, that right. it should be on the backs of regular people. The idea is you know, why shouldn't the rich be expected to pay for this? We're the ones that are being asked to pay for this transition that are bearing the cost of your policies. 
Yeah, and, and that's uh, the real important point here. Yeah, at the same time that Macron is doing the uh, classic neoliberal trick of you know massive tax cuts and deregulation for the billionaires, the big corporations, and cutting social services and suppressing wages for average working people, and now hitting them with a 25% increase in fuel taxes on top of that. How do you think uh, this? Go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, this is a movement that's also sprung up from parts of French society that are not accustomed to protest. That's why I think it's captured so much attention in France. It's also why the government has actually conceded on this initial demand about canceling the fuel tax. They've actually now canceled the fuel tax increase, a 10% increase for 2019. They've conceded. You know, it sparked a lot of fear, and that's because this is coming from people that are not your typical left-wing or labor demonstrators. These are coming from people that live outside of major cities. That's the first point, coming from rural areas, coming from what in France is known as the peri-urban areas. So these are basically outskirts of suburbs and the transition between you know, rural areas and more suburban areas. These are coming from people that are not terribly political. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what has people frightened. And this was the backlash against right. uh, Macron's and, first year in office. And those are the areas where people would be more likely to have a long commute to work because you know, they're, not, they're not living in the city center. Although France does have a pretty good public transportation system. But my understanding is, Cole, uh, we're talking with Cole Stangler, the Paris-based journalist for The Nation and Jacobin. My understanding is that this was, to a large extent, organized on social media, specifically Facebook. Do I have that right? And has there been any evidence? I mean, we're seeing here in the United States now that you know, 21 out of 22 million comments or something like that to the FCC saying blow up net neutrality were entirely coming from bots, apparently corporate bots, and were totally faked. Is there any evidence that social media has been manipulated in a way that might make these demonstrations worse or larger than otherwise expected? You know, we've seen speculation about that. I haven't seen any conclusive evidence to really convince me that's the case. Um, You know, there was a BuzzFeed piece recently that made the connection between Facebook and the protests. It is clear, though, that this protest was organized mostly on Facebook and social media. Mm. That's why it's so remarkable. That's why it's also very messy. That you know, we shouldn't you know romanticize this too much. You have some real progressive demands that are being circulated among these Facebook groups, and again, no you know real lack of structure here as well, which is again why it's so fascinating and, yeah. and kind of frightening. It sounds like there's yeah. there's the French equivalent of the Black Bloc that is participating in this, and perhaps even the French equivalent of the Proud Boys that both the the left-wingers who like to smash the windows of fancy stores and the right-wingers who like to go out and turn it into anti-immigrant stuff in their respective spheres have been doing this. Are those roles being exaggerated by the media, particularly here in the United States? Is that actually a real phenomenon? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that you do have groups of the far right and you have kind of extreme anarchists as well that have come to the demonstrations, mostly in Paris. Again, mm-hmm. I think it's important to emphasize Paris is the, is the center of media attention in France. It's also the center of attention from abroad. That's what gets the attention. But if you look at the rest of the country, I mean, Paris, you had, I think, 10,000 demonstrators this most recent Saturday. You had you know, tens of thousands of other demonstrators across the country where you don't have these incidents taking place. You don't have as much of the violence. So you do have the far right. You do have some anarchist taps into it. But by and large, the supporters of this movement, the people that are coming out of protest, tend to be, you know, not very political people. And that's why this is such a, a unique movement here. Absolutely fascinating. Cole Stangler, the Paris-based journalist, contributor to The Nation and Jacobin. ColeStangler.com is his website. You can tweet him at Cole Stangler, S-T-A-N-G-L-E-R. Cole, thanks so much for dropping by today and laying all this out for us. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. It's always great talking with you, Cole. And keep safe. Merci. Uh, thank you. Tom Harbin here with you. Okay, over the weekend, since Friday, basically, here's some of the things that we have learned. We have learned, we have learned that, according to the prosecutors from the Southern District of New York, it's not alleged that Donald Trump participated with Michael Cohen in an illegal scheme to defraud uh, Republican primary voters and ultimately all American voters of the knowledge that he had had affairs, uh, the Stormy Daniels, a one-night stand. The Karen McDougal lasted over a year. This was in the year immediately following the birth of his son, Barron, and who I think is now 11 or 12, something like that, that he, he covered these things up. He, he directed Michael Cohen to do so. He gave him the money to do so. And, uh, and it's not just Michael Cohen saying this, that the prosecutors have independent corroborating evidence. So they didn't come out and say, maybe Trump did this, or it's alleged that Trump did this. They just came out and said Trump did it. Now, you know, it's hard to, to 
to explicitly blame Russia for this. I mean, here you had Trump. They're sitting there going, okay, we're under sanctions. And we would like the sanctions lifted. And then here comes Trump saying, hey, I can get the sanctions lifted. Just let me build a hotel. Okay, let's go for it. Right? I mean, you know, this just kind of makes sense at a certain level. So here we have this clear evidence of two examples of a massive fraud against the American people. There is no way that the Republican Party, the Republican primaries, would have made Donald Trump their nominee. Keep in mind, the, the, the Access Hollywood tape didn't come out until the general election. That came out when Trump was running against Hillary Clinton. Republicans, you know, the, the, they still consider themselves fundamentalist Christians. There's no way Trump would, you know, Trump would have become the GOP nominee if the word about his year-long affair with Karen McDougal and his uh, affair with a porn star, Stormy Daniels, had come out. Wouldn't have happened. It would have been Hillary Clinton versus Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton versus somebody else. And Hillary Clinton probably would have won against a conventional Republican nominee. So number one, there was that fraud against the Republicans in the primary. Number two, the fraud against the American people with regard to all this Russia stuff, plus the Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels stuff. So in my opinion, just these two things that we learned on Friday, and these are not speculation. This is, these are actual charges, assertions are enough to impeach Trump. So what about Mike Pence? Mike Pence was in charge of the transition. Mike Pence was in tight on all this stuff. If there is even the smallest amount of evidence that Mike Pence knew about either of these crimes, we should, in, we should, we should impeach and remove from office both Donald Trump and Mike Pence, which means that you get President Nancy Pelosi. Can we work on that? Do you know anything about Mike Pence's involvement in any of this stuff that might make him impeachable as well? There's so little on the record. And then, and then this uh, guy Ayers, uh, Nick Ayers, I think his name is, who was, who is uh, Pence's, yeah, Nick Ayers, who's Pence's uh, chief of staff. He's running back to Georgia now. Why? Because he's got tens of millions of dollars. The guy's 34, 36 years old, something like that. He's got tens of millions of dollars that he made running political campaigns over the last decade. How do you make tens of millions of dollars as a campaign consultant? I mean, typically campaign consultants are paid quarter million a year, half million a year. Maybe if you're Carl Rove, a million bucks. This guy is like worth 30, 40, 50 million dollars. There's some debates about it, but somewhere in that neighborhood, and he made it all, and he came from a middle-class family, he made it all running Republican campaigns. I'm guessing that he doesn't want the job of Trump's chief of staff because he himself is corrupt. After all, he's a Republican. So is it time to have President Nancy Pelosi? Do you think this could work? Would you like to see President Nancy Pelosi? What, you know, what are your thoughts on the crimes of Mike Pence other than being, you know, basically totally unqualified for the job? I mean, basically, you know, he was governor of Indiana for a while. Before that, he was a right wing talk show host and a shill for the tobacco industry, actually. When do you want to spot that burglar when he's casing your home or after he's in? Ask John, whose blink camera alerted him a burglar's trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, video clips from Blink were sent to police to help convict the crooks. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two AA batteries that last up to two years. And if you're traveling over the holidays, Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check on your pets from anywhere using the Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable, and Blink works with Alexa. Blink camera systems make great holiday gifts, and they're a brilliant way to monitor your holiday package deliveries. Visit BlinkProtect.com holiday. That's BlinkProtect.com holiday. Visit BlinkProtect.com holiday. Once again, BlinkProtect.com holiday. Blink is an Amazon company. John in Portland. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Hello. Uh, big fan. Listen to you all the time. Well, thank you, John. Um, but I'm um, talking about uh, Nancy Pelosi as president and with the economy on its way down and crashing. Do you think that maybe once it hits rock bottom, they'd be like, you know what, maybe we should impeach this guy. And oh, yep, 
Pence too, and now we, now the Democrats own it. Yeah, and maybe well, they're just maybe they're just waiting for it to hit rock bottom before they give it back to us like they normally do. Well, I, I'm not so I'm not sure it's so much that they're waiting for it to hit rock bottom as yeah, I think you're confusing cause and effect. What happens when the economy goes when the when the economy goes in the tank? The people tend to turn against the the inbound the existing administration. If the economy had not gone so far down so fast and so badly in 2008, there's a strong argument to be made that uh, John McCain would be president right now. Um, instead, because uh, the economy was collapsing, voters said, "Okay, let's try the Democrat," and they went with Barack Obama. Uh, you know, even though he was black and his middle name was Hussein, um, which caused all the Republicans to giggle gleefully and think there's no way this guy's going to get elected. But he did. And it worked out pretty well for us. Um, and and uh, but but the point is that people blame the existing administration for when the economy tanks and they reward the ad- existing administration for when the economy does well. And that's why the Republicans are that, that's why, you know, Trump is freaking out. He's just sitting around watching the stock market. It's down 338 points right now and going, this is not good. This is not good for my reelection. And and he is of the personal opinion that he needs to be reelected in order to stay out of prison, that as long as he's in the White House, they can't put him in jail, which may or may not be the case. So Let, make, we we can only hope for the best. There you go. But the the other thing, uh, John, that I thought was interesting is uh, on Twitter, um, a couple of people, you know, tweeted, uh, well, here. A, About the smocking gun? Yeah, no, no. Stoner man says not till after Trump. Uh, oh, that, that was another one. That was a different story. The smocking uh, gun. Pax on your house says, my preference would be the whole administration be considered null and void. If putting Pelosi in office is a result of that, then yes, I agree. Barbara uh, Doucette says, I agree with President Pelosi as an interim until we have new elections. But here's the good one. This is Resistance Stevie uh, tweets, I say yay to President Pelosi and she can appoint Hillary as speaker. You don't have to be a member of the House of Representatives to be Speaker of the House. So lots of possibilities Uh, here, John. John, thanks a lot for the call. The future is bright. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Good talking with you. Sheena in uh, Prairie Grove, Arkansas. Am I pronouncing your name right? Yes, Tom. Hi. Hi. Uh, Well, your comment just ticked my thunder. I, I totally agree with the option of Nancy Pelosi being president, and I think it would be hilarious if she stepped down and appointed Hillary Clinton. As, as Speaker of the House or as Vice President. As president. You know, she could also yeah. appoint Hillary as Vice President and then she could resign the next day. Yeah, exactly. I think that would be. That would be incredible, great. wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it, it would be karma in action. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as much as I was a Bernie fan until the primary, but once Hillary won the primary, then, you know, I, I was going home for Hillary. And, and I think that. Well, you know, she's the she is actually the rightful president of the United States. If it had not been for Donald Trump's frauds, Hillary Clinton would be president of the of the United States. So, you know, yes. And, you know, I love when you you termed it election fraud. And I started to notice a little bit now on MSNBC and stuff. They're they're starting to say election fraud. Yeah, because because it is. You were spot on. Yeah, this is not voter fraud. There's no such thing as voter fraud. This is election fraud, which the Republicans have been engaging in for you know several decades. I mean, going back to the '60s, actually, uh, is when Rehnquist. They're finally starting to shine a light on it, and I love that uh, progressive Democrats. That uh, that's in their top three. Yeah. Uh, things to fight. And I, I think that's wonderful. They're on the right track. I agree. Shana, thanks so much for the call. I, I totally agree with you. Kathy in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Kathy. Hi, Tom. How you doing? Great. Um, it, the Republicans are never going to let that happen. And I think what would happen realistically is that if it ever got close to Pence being implicated with the real possibility of being impeachment, they would tell him, you've got to resign just like Spiro Agnew had to resign. Mm-hmm. They're going to put some clean guy in there as a temporary VP. Uh, Trump will be gone. Let's say there's no doubt that, you know, uh, it'll be impeachment, although he'd have to weather, um, you know, uh, the re- pardon me, the Dems would have to overcome somehow opposition in the Senate. But just let's say that go through. You're going to have a careholder Republican, um, uh, a placeholder, rather, Republican VP in place uh, until 20, you know, the, through mm-hmm. the 2020 election. Right. Sorry, a Jerry Ford scenario. Jerry Ford scenario. Um, Jerry Ford was, you know, rather benign. 
mm-hmm. kind of goofy. You know, they're not going to want to get anybody controversial in there, but somebody quiet is just going to sign their bills as, at least as much as they can they can ram through. But I think it's um, uh, it's a little bit crazy, in my opinion. To at least encourage people into thinking that a Nancy Pelosi presidency is possible, they are never going to uh, let it happen. They hate women. They hate powerful women. Uh, and my God, if you mentioned Hillary Clinton in there, it's going to get really insane. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah but on the one hand, on the other hand, we only need uh, either seven or eight Republican senators to be so horrified by what Trump has done and what Pence has done. Uh, if, uh, assuming that we can demonstrate that Pence is complicit in it. We only need seven or eight of these senators to say, uh, okay, we'll join the Democrats and, and vote these bums out. Uh, you know, if, if the truth comes out, I mean, if it's as bad as it, as it looks right now, and, and, and it looks like it's going to get a whole lot uglier, by the way, because Mueller's got several other independent investigations going on that he's not leaking a word about. Yeah. Uh, I have a feeling that we're going we're gonna to hear the treason, the T word, treason, a whole lot, and maybe coming out of Republicans' mouths. In fact, this might be. See, right now the Republican Party is torn in half between the Trump faction and the and the kind of you know classic uh, Reagan, whatever you want to call it, you know corporate function, and and they're they're almost at war with each other. And I suspect that there are at uh, I, I don't know. I'd have to do a kind of a whip count of all the Republicans in the Senate. But if there are you know seven or eight kind of John McCain Republicans. Um, you know, Ben Sass appears to be positioning himself as one of those guys right now. I think, obviously, because he wants to be president one day. Um, but, you know, they may say, okay, here's our chance to de Trumpify the Republican Party. And putting Nancy Pelosi in as president by impeaching both Trump and Pence, actually, many of them would see as a good thing because they know that the Republican Party does not work well when it governs. They only work well. It only, you know, it only gets the support of people, and they can only successfully raise money and things and mobilize voters when they have an enemy. They, you know, they've got to. They run on grievance. They've got nothing to offer the American people policy-wise. We've seen that for two years now, other than tax cuts for billionaires. So, it, it, I think that some of those guys may well think, you know, having this hated woman, powerful, all the things that you just described, Kathy, uh, would totally jack up the Republican base and would thus be a good thing for them in 2020. Well, let me just say, uh, uh, one of the things about 2020 is that apparently there's going to be a lot more vulnerable Republicans in the Senate than there were in the uh, in the past midterm yes. in 2018. So what you're saying, yeah, that's, that's possible, too. I just think that they are so corrupt and so beholden. It's all about their corporate donors. You know, you talk about that extensively. Right. But, their, cor- but their, corporate donors wanted, their corporate donors wanted deregulation and a massive tax cut for billionaires, and they got both of those things. But they've gotten all of it. Well, yeah. maybe maybe they'll back off for a while and let the rest of the country breathe. But uh, <laughs> we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. Any evidence of we'll that see. so far? Kathy, thanks a lot for the call. James in Spokane, Washington. Hey, James, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up, Tom? It's a bit redundant because you heard it last week. But what do you think the answer is to the Speaker of the House blocking legislation from the opposing party for making it to the floor? That seems really flawed. I think it would require a change in House rules. Okay, can be done, huh? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's simply the House rules. The, the rules give the Speaker that ability, and those rules get reset at literally every two years. And they can what be rewritten. Say what? What was it originally? You mean at the you founding know? of the Republic? Yeah, yeah. When they, when they wrote the Constitution, when they set up the rules, any, any idea? I don't. I really don't. I, I would be astonished if the House rules in, in the first few sessions of Congress uh, you know, throughout the Washington and Adams and maybe even Jefferson presidencies were longer than a few paragraphs. I would just be astounded, but I'm not really sure. They may have had rules that had to do with behavior and things. But the ability of the speaker to block legislation from having a vote and the whole idea that you have to have a discharge petition to get around the speaker and that it takes, you know, a majority of maybe even a supermajority, but I think it's just a, a simple majority of, of members to, to get the discharge petition going. Those are all written into the House rules. When the Democrats come in, with the new house in January, the first week of January in 2019, the first thing that they'll vote on after they vote on the speaker, I, I believe the first thing they'll vote on, maybe it's the second thing, Bob Nay could tell us and he'll be on in just a minute, is the rules. And they can edit those. That's why we had Stephanie Kelton suggesting that the PAYGO rule, which was put into place as a result of a collaboration between Republicans and corporate Dems, uh, the new Dems, 
where it said that anytime you spend money, you have to also pay for it. You have to cut spending someplace else or you have to raise taxes. That PAYGO rule should be blown up. We should just take it out. And then you also you've got the new Dems who are suggesting, along with the Republicans, that anything that increases taxes on the bottom 80% of Americans should require a two-thirds majority in the House of Representatives to pass, which means that you're going to have to have a two-thirds majority rather than a simple majority to pass Medicare for all, because even though it's going to save us $5 trillion over the next 10 years, it's going to increase taxes while, you know, it'll decrease the amount of money that we're spending on health insurance and things. But it would basically make that impossible. Seems like a lot of neurosis going around. Yeah, yeah. But the, the, the PAYGO thing and this bottom 80% of the taxpayers, these are very, very toxic rules that are designed by both the new Democratic coalition and the Republican Party to prevent the progressives from passing any consequential progressive legislation that might in any way really seriously and consequentially change the way that our economy works right now, which is heavily rigged on the behalf of the corporations, the health insurance companies, and the billionaires. So So it worries me about the Democrats, too. How are they going to stand up against these people? We need a new broom. These guys are too culpable themselves. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think over the next uh, probably the next four years, the next two congressional cycles, you're going to see a lot of these new Dems, uh, you know, the Tim Ryans of the world get uh, primaried out. Uh, Harvey in Los Angeles. Hey, Harvey, what's on your mind today? Hello, fellow vegan. How are you doing? (laughs) Good, good. Well, I'm I'm a, I'm a vegan with an asterisk because I eat fish about I once a month. I understand. We all, <laughs> so, we all have our faux pas. It's yeah. okay. And if, I'm in, and if I'm in a restaurant and there's a little bit of cheese on something, I'll eat it. Uh, you know, I'm not hysterical about it, but I, you know, I'm it's not you. in our house. I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. I had this idea of getting people from each state that would make good representatives and senators and maybe a president and uh, they would not be connected to any uh, company money, mm-hmm. and uh, bring them all en masse into Washington, put them in a temporary school, teach them how the Congress works, so that they can uh, hit the ground running, and we call them, uh, call it a new group called the Graduates. Hmm. To, to run the country. Yes. So you, we, you, know we, how the, you know how the ancient Greeks did it? It was like jury duty. Every year or every cycle, whatever it was, maybe it wasn't a one-year cycle, but I think it was, uh, every year you would uh, get a, a number, basically, or your name would go into the lottery, and they drew the names of 6,001 people, 6001 people. And you were notified that, hey, it's your job to be a legislator for the next 12 months. And if you refused or if you didn't show up, uh, there was a word for that. It was idiota, I-D-I-O-T-A, the missing legislator. And that's where our word idiot came from. <laughs> hmm. Well, they've, um, they've moved that word over to the, uh, to the GOP. <laughs> there you go. Harvey, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, this, you know, I'm not sure that jury duty as a model for how we pick our legislators is a bad idea. I'm not sure that that's a bad idea at all. But the Republicans have figured out a way to rig the jury pool. So, you know, what can you do? Welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do. The new book by Ellen Ratner on the line with us is the author of Sideswiped, former Congressman, Ohio Congressman Bob Ney. Bob, welcome back to the program. Thank you. I love what I do. (laughs) Me too. So real quickly, just to get it out of the way, the House rules, PAYGO rule, these other rules, are they the first thing that is voted on when Congress comes back or is the first thing the Speaker? Or what is the first so what thing? happens is the previous clerk of the House, which would have been under Ryan, actually calls the entire body to order. No member. The right. clerk does. They take attendance. Then they preside over the election first of a new speaker. Then they go on to the minority leader, right? right. Then, after that is done, then the first order of business, there's two orders of business. The first is going to be the rules of the House, and the second, the House officers. You know, the clerk and the sergeant of arms, et cetera. That's how it runs. So clerk calls the roll, then the new speaker, the new minority leader, then the House rules package. So that gives the new speaker an opportunity to essentially endorse or lobby for or against the new rules. Oh, absolutely. And, and Speaker Pelosi has some fascinating, frankly, and I know she's gotten a lot of heat with the committee chairmanship, you know, limiting them and everything, which happened under Gingrich at one time. Mm-hmm. But she also has... Uh, 
I think, uh, to her credit, and it's a little bit at odds with some traditions, okay? But again, their traditions, rules are the rules, and they can do whatever they want, really. But she's saying if you have 290 co-sponsors of any party, uh, you can't shelve the bill. Because today, a committee chairman says, uh, nope. Now, don't get me wrong, I've done it. I did it with McCain. But but they'll say, no, uh, we're not going to do this. And then guess what? You then have to go after the committee chairman. Uh-huh. And honestly, Tom, in most cases, nobody in their right mind to be their political party is going to go after the committee chairman. So this is to prevent bills from dying in committee. She's in favor of that. Correct. That's, That's great. exactly what she's doing. It's, it's breaking tradition. It's taking some power from the chairs. Now, the chairs still have powers, you know. Right. And she has another one, Tom. If you have the support of 20 Democratic members and 20 Republicans, you get a priority vote on an amendment. Wow. So if you go to the Speaker and say, I've got 20 R's and 20 D's, she's going to say, okay, we're going to bump that right up to the front. You know, we're going we're gonna to do that. And then if you sit on a committee... You're guaranteed at least one vote on a bill you have co-sponsored. Wow. As long as you have a sponsor from the other party with you. So this is essentially expanding small-D democracy. What about... This is amazing. Yeah, what, what about the PAYGO rules that you know, came out of the New Democratic Coalition and the Republicans, or actually I think it was the DLC back in the day, and this proposal from the New Democratic Coalition that would make it impossible to pass Medicare for All that says that anything that requires an increase on taxes on the bottom 80% of Americans requires a supermajority, a two-thirds vote in the House of Representatives. Do you have any idea what Nancy Pelosi's position is on those two things? I don't, but I can't imagine where she would tie her hands and the House's hands on not just that issue, but any other issue of that nature, because then you're, you're almost into this, you know, supermajority on something that is sort of a Senate, you know, how they have the cloture right. vote and things like that. Yeah, it's like the equivalent that. of a filibuster, yeah. I can't it's automatic. imagine where she would do this. I just kind of wonder if there's some things we just don't know. I'm sure this. there are, Bob, don't you think? Mm-hmm. We will know. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Bob Nay, uh, author of Sideswipe. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Great talking with you. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, thanks so much for being with us today. It's been a fascinating day. I'm sure it will be tomorrow, too, as we continue on through the most criminal administration in the history of the United States. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're in. Pitch in, please. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.